Thank you for joining us for today's Pulpit Hour, a message from God's Word brought to you by The Preaching Channel. To listen to this message in its entirety again, to download it or to choose from a variety of other messages, or to listen to preaching 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, log on to WGCRpreaching.net. Now, we're going to use our Bibles a lot this morning, so please, if you would, stay with me as we turn, first of all, to, uh, I'm, I'm exasperated, not knowing exactly where I should go here, but let's try this, Mark 14, let's, let's go to Mark 14, you're there in Mark already. To me, this is the holy of holies in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Well, I say this is the Holy of Holies. Actually, I think the actual Holy of Holies was um, when he said on the cross, as was referenced last night, Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so in that darkness, there were things going on that we will not know until we get to heaven. But here it's very holy ground as Jesus has come to the place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. It's almost like a first cousin to Onomatopoeia. He's, he's, he's in a situation where he is being pressed. The Bible says in verse 32 of Mark 14, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he talked. He taketh with him Peter and James and John, watch this, and began to be. So he was already in some stress, but now something is happening that ups the ante, that increases the pressure, the pressure of Gethsemane, the olive press. Now he began to be, now he's entered into the vice, now he's entered into the squeeze, now he's entered into... The heartbreak. You remember in the Gospels when Jesus died upon the cross, they placed a spear into his side, seeing that he was already dead, and out came blood and water. Talk to medical people and they will tell you that the heart is in a watery serum. So when they saw blood and water, that was evidence that the Lord died with a broken heart. For the prophecy 1,000 years earlier says in Psalm 22, My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. On Sunday morning, we record on the DVR the Sunday morning news on, on CBS, and I kind of like some of those human life stories that they tell, so uh, we're too busy Sunday morning to watch it, but oftentimes on Sunday night, we will watch it kind of as, as we kick back with popcorn and apples and, and such like, and, um, and I saw this article on there that I had read about some years ago, and it had to do with people really do die with broken hearts. For instance, my, one of my last great mentors just died, Dr. Raymond Hancock. Some of you know him. 
Uh, he brought me under his wing as though he uh, were my father, and he was, and I was his son. I mean, since I've been a teenager. Actually, when I was in high school down in Brandon, Florida, he and my dad pastored near each other. And I mean, since I was an 18-year-old preacher and I was preaching in uh, his pulpit, he was the one 1982 South Wide Baptist Fellowship that brought me up before the people. And when we, when we became independent Baptists, he was the one that brought me into the field. And so through the years we've stayed very, very close in contact with each other. Well, he and his wife were married right at 67 years. I preached uh, Mom Hancock's funeral, and then 14 months later, I preached Dr. Hancock's funeral. Pastor in the same church 34 years, I've marveled over the years at this unmistakable thing that could not be a coincidence. When I see very, very close couples... Oftentimes, within a year of preaching one funeral, I preached the other. And the CBS article was talking about how that they were interviewing doctors. They said, oh, yes. And they were actually showing pictures of a person that went through a heartbreak. And you could see their heart was literally physically being damaged. People do die with a broken heart. I will tell you this also, I believe I have lived long enough to see parents dying with a broken heart when prodigals don't return. I really do. You know, so when you hear a mom or dad say to you when you're about to leave the will of God, you're breaking my heart, they're not speaking metaphorically, in hyperbole, telling you the truth. You're physically killing them you know there's a lot of reasons we ought to live for Jesus if loving Jesus is not enough to keep you if you would consider that you may kill your mother or father that'll be good enough I like what brother Loyola said you can borrow my convictions till you get yours so I'll borrow that for an excuse not to live for the devil I mean, any way we can keep you from living for the world, the flesh, and the devil, we'll, we'll use. I would like it to be the basic main reason because you love Jesus so much. But if Jesus isn't real enough that you, you can't love him enough to serve him, can you love your mom enough to serve the Lord? Can you love your dad enough to serve the Lord? Could you wait for them to leave this world and go to heaven before you decide to be a drunk? To be in a fornicator? To be a liar? When they put the spear into the side of Jesus, outflow blood and water. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. When the heart does rupture the serum, watery serum, and the blood flow down into the stomach, down into the bowels, so when they... Put that spear in his side. There's your evidence. And he taketh with him, verse 33, Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed. Now those two words from the Greek expression don't exactly capture what we have for meaning. Matter of fact, 
Modern warfare has aided Greek scholars in defining what this phrase, sore amaze, means. The best scholars that I know, well, one in particular said this, that to the best of our ability, the equivalent in English understanding is when he began to be, watch this, in shock and awe. Shock and awe. This came to us to our understanding in the Iraqi war when bomb after bomb and missile after missile began to hit the enemy and it took them so off guard that in a matter of hours, desert storm was over and what got them was shock and awe. Hit them with everything you have. Knock them off their feet. Put them in shock. Put them in awe. This is what it means when the Bible says Jesus was sore amazed. You know, it, it, it amazes me that anything would amaze the Lord. But this amazed the Lord. Something is revealed to Jesus that is so traumatic, it knocks him off his feet. Literally, he's laid out. He's sweating as it were great drops of blood, Luke tells us. And again, medical science tells us that our sweat comes from our bloodstream. So under great duress and stress, it's not unusual at all for a man to sweat perspiration stained with blood. I beg your pardon. It is unusual, okay? But it does happen and has been medically known to happen. But in the case of Jesus, when he's in Gethsemane, people are in shock and awe when they see him because he has not yet been pierced. But when he rose up from from prayer, he was bleeding. Shock and awe. He began to be sore amazed, look at this, and very heavy. He who said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, now forgoes the rest, now forgoes the heavy burden, and takes it upon himself. As old Dr. Lee, my old, one of my old mentors, used to say, he came from the glory of heaven to the gory earth, from the hallelujahs of heaven to the hisses of earth, from the joys of heaven to the jeers of earth, heaven's bread for her hunger, heaven's joy for her sorrow. Now he enters into sorrow like we've never known before. The Bible says he began to be very heavy. And saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. By the way, I'm going to come back to this. But in Hebrews chapter 5, let me read you what it says in Hebrews 5 and verse number 7. When he is talking here, this is not exaggeration. When it says that he was entering into this, I mean, according to the Bible, he was literally entering into the very throes of death. Hebrews 5 and verse number 7. Please listen to the word of God here as we read it. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. When in his ministry did he offer up strong crying and tears? Gethsemane. And during that time, he was saved from death. In other words, he was about to die with a broken heart right there. That's why Luke's gospel says, not only he sweat, and by the way, Luke was a physician, so the Holy Spirit used his understanding to put these inspired words here so that Luke understood what God the Holy Spirit was telling him to write. So Luke tells, him, tells us that, by the way, an angel came and ministered to him at this time. You know what that means is the angel came and was part of the life-saving, the physical life-saving effort by the Father at this point. 
So he literally came right at the door of death. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now watch this. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible that he take, take this cup from me. Now again, this was referenced last night. And again, I, I love the way the Lord's building things together here. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, the Father, hath made him, the Son, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it? Theologians have argued for years, is that positional holiness or is it practical holiness? The argument is really moot. It, no, no. If you are positionally holy, you will be practically holy. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So, so Christ became sin for us. So keeping that in mind, he says, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of my judgment, the cup of my damnation, the cup of God's wrath. And all through the Bible, you can look up cup and see it referenced to the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's indignation. So why was Christ saying, let the cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's indignation be passed from him? Because he knows that in order to die for man's sin, the Father now reveals to him, the only way you can die effectively for man's sin is that you become sin. More painful than the lashes upon his back. More painful than the nails in his hands. More painful than the thorns on his brow. Was my sin and your sin. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, He, the Father, shall see the travail of, that's Christ, his soul and be satisfied. The soul travail was more painful, if you can believe it, than the nails. Why was that so painful? Because thou art of purer eyes than the behold evil, Habakkuk tells us. The God, the Son, hates sin as much as the Holy Ghost and the Father. To let you know, I know that's what he was talking about. Because after he took my cup of sin and your sin, the next thing he cries out is my God. Because now the Holy Spirit who can easily be grieved as the sins of mankind were poured upon Jesus takes his flight. Then he says it not once but twice. My God! As the Father turns his back and at least 72,000 war angels of heaven are resheathing scarlet threaded uh, blades. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 soldiers. Can you imagine what 12 legion, which is at least 72,000 angels could do that are really bent out of shape? So all of heaven turns his back as the Holy Spirit takes his flight and God the Father turns his back. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here's the deal. When that is revealed to Jesus in Gethsemane, it is so traumatic that he says in verse 36, and he said, Abba! Now that's one of the hardest words to translate. It's Aramaic, a touch of Hebrew. There's a little Greek involved. It's like, it's a transliteration. You know, we were talking about how some terms were used a few years ago that aren't used right now. Like, for instance, I think that everybody's forgotten exactly what 
swell means? Oh, swell. Well, that was back in the 50s. Back in the 60s, we had another word. And every now and then it slips out because I was in the 60s. And I do remember it, okay? But there was a word that we used often back then that now I use it and people kind of smile. Groovy. It kind of makes you feel groovy like an old-time movie. Okay, groovy. Groovy, you know. And there's a lot of things that you say now that I'm not exactly, you know, a hipster with. Hashtag, I'm lost, okay? Um, (laughs) This is a word that through the, not merely decades, but through the hundreds of years and couple of thousand years has kind of lost its meaning. But scholarship tells us, and this is what we often hear, is that the word Abba is our word for daddy. Well, yes and no. Because there's this immense respect that is still in the connotation of this phrase or this word, Abba. But leading scholarship tells us, to the best of our ability, the English expression for Abba is that which is uttered by a child just learning to talk, a toddler, the closest The closest in English to what Jesus said there when he said Abba, and I'm not trying to be funny, I'm as serious as can be, the closest we can come to it is Dada. Dada. Like a little baby that is so afraid in this world that he has just entered into, he doesn't have a vocabulary to express the fear that he experiences, to express the exasperation that he experiences. So what he or she does is simply with longing, lifting hands in fear, cries out, Dada! Jesus now reverting back to the earliest expression of human language to describe the agony that he's going through. Our Lord's heart is breaking. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 4 and verse number 15. Hebrews 4 and verse number 15. Hebrews 4 and verse number 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let me read that again. But was in all points tempted like as we are. I'm going to back up a little bit. When I get the word tempted, read with me to the comma. Ready? But was in all points, read it with me out loud, Tempted like as we are. Say it again. Tempted like as we are. Here we have Jesus. Experiencing the broken heart. And the Bible says he is tried. He is tested like we are. So there's nobody here that can go through a broken heart that says nobody knows what I'm experiencing. Matter of fact, I want you to see something in Matthew 14. Look at Matthew 14. Um, We were mentioning John the Baptist. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't know, but one thing that I feel sure of is that Jesus and John were very, very close. More than even the scripture alludes to. The reason being, let me just give you a few reasons. 
as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped for, in my womb for joy. Uh, Luke 1, Matthew 3, 14, John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Uh, Matthew eleven eleven. Verily, verily, verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Ver, uh, chapter 7 of Luke and verse 28, among those that are born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Matthew 3, 11, I indeed baptize you with water and do repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. Uh, John 1, 15, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John 3, 30, I must, he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, chapter 3 of Luke, verse 16, I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John was at least his second cousin removed, um, at least, I would say. Maybe third cousin, we're not for sure. Simply we know that Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary. So although they didn't hang out all that much, because a lot of secular history will tell us that at 15 years of age, John was driven into the wilderness. His old mother and father died, and he was out there in the desert alone. That's why he didn't fear the face of man, because he lived in the face of God. So when he came out, he came out of the wilderness just preaching repentance and telling everybody that there's someone coming after him who's mightier than he is. And uh, he was the one that recognized Jesus and said twice upon first seeing Jesus, as Jesus entered his ministry, he described not only who he was, but why he came. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And I was, I was, I was doing some study on the subject of when Christ fed... The 5,000 men, not counting women and children, probably 25 to 30,000 in total. But I was just studying for that thought, the harmony of the Gospels. And then Matthew said something that really touched me in Matthew 14. When Herod's birthday, verse 6, was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Somebody said, you Baptists, you believe in not dancing still? I said, yeah, there's a Baptist preacher in the Bible that lost his head at a dance. His name was John. I'm a Baptist, my name's John, you dance, I get nervous, okay? Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask, and she being instructed of her mother said, give me here John Baptist's head in the charger, and the king was sorry, nevertheless for the oath sakes and for them which said it meet, he commanded to be given to her, peering, peer, uh, caving in the peer pressure, and he sent and beheaded John in the prison, he beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Now watch this. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. I'm not dogmatic, but if you were to ask me to guess who is Jesus' best friend? It was John. See, we don't hear what happened between the age of 12 and 30. But if you think that a lot didn't happen, I challenge you to read the last part, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And John said, if all the things were written, right, there would not be enough libraries, there would not be enough books to hold what happened in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in the life of Jesus Christ. I think John was his best friend. They were cousins.
And when his disciples came, verse number 12, and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. John was not only the forerunner that was his cousin. He was the one that adored Jesus and who made the way for Jesus. Jesus came and think about this. He submitted himself to the hands of John as John pushed him under the waters of baptism. And then John gave testimony that the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a heavenly dove. We heard the Father speaking saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so the greatest pronouncement that the Father ever gave came after his best friend just baptized him. And went and told Jesus, and this is what captured my attention. Look at verse 13. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. Jesus was brokenhearted. He sought to get alone to get through this hurt. I mean, the greatest heartbreak was about to come in Gethsemane when he would lose the fellowship of the Father because he's taken our sin. But he's teaching us something. He was tempted in all manner like we are, yet without sin. When his heart was broken, he did not sin. In conclusion, here are the points of the message. In conclusion. No one is exempt from a broken heart. What can I do when my heart is broken? Number one, help others. Get your mind off yourself. When Jesus was in the garden, he was thinking of the Father. He was thinking of us. For God so loved the world. The only one that ever never sinned in this life, and yet at his most heartbroken time, he was not thinking of himself. When John was, when John was killed and was told Jesus, and it so moved him that he sought to get to a place by himself. Here's what the Bible said there in Matthew 14, 14. So Jesus heard of it. He departed by thence into a, 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 by, by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So Jesus was taking a four-mile trek across the water, and people were running eight miles and they and they ran eight miles ahead of him and got ahead of him and they were waiting on the other side and Jesus was attempting to get by himself to get through this heartbreak but by the time he got to the other side here's what was waiting for him verse number 14 and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them everybody say toward them and he healed their sick. He didn't heal his own broken heart. He healed everybody else's broken heart. He healed other people. What do I do if my heart is broken? Don't throw a pity party. You're the only one that will attend. Do something for somebody else. Help somebody else who's had a broken heart. Isn't that what Paul told the church at Corinth? With the same comfort God gave you, now you give it to other people. What do we do? Mark 6 and verse number 30. 
What can I do with my broken heart? You can help others. Number two, listen to a positive report. Now in the harmony of the gospel, this is what happened next. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. I love this. Now again, if you look at it, verse 29, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb, and the apostles, this is right after John has been killed, and the apostles gathered themselves unto Jesus and told him all things, both of what they had done and what they had taught. So what do I do when my heart's broken? Receive a good report. Don't drown yourself in your sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. Lift your heart with a good report. That's why the reading of the Word of God is so important during the time of a broken heart. That's why everybody I ever talked to that ever gets a broken heart says, my heart was broken. But then I read Psalm. And then I read... So listen to something positive. Don't listen to something negative. Hey... You got an inferior complex? Your friend wants to talk to you. Can I talk to you about that? Sure. I think I can help you with your inferior complex. Yeah? How's that? You don't have an inferior complex? I don't? No. It's not a complex. You are inferior. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. Oh, she'll never take you back. Oh, I'll never take you back. Well, I'll tell you where you blew it. Oh, there's always the naysayers when they find out that you're hurting are so not helpful. So I always tell our preacher boys, when you go to pray with somebody in the hospital, don't go in there saying, oh, you've got this illness? My uncle died with that. Can we pray? Don't! <laughs> Give a positive report. Listen to a positive report. And then I love this in Matthew 6 and 31. Remember, according to what the gospel said, Jesus was crossing the water to get by himself, but instead he saw he had to help others. And instead, he listened to the disciples give a good report. And then it says in verse 31, And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Vance Avenue used to say, If you don't learn to rest a while and come apart and rest a while, you'll just come apart. He said, For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And I've often thought, Isn't that nice? They got together by themselves and just kind of had some downtime. That's not what the Bible tells us. He went out there to spend some time alone with the disciples. He said, come apart, everybody. It's real busy, but guess what showed up? Verse number 32. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately, and the people saw them departing, and they knew him, and they ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and out went them and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, was moved with compassion toward them, because... They were as a sheep not having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So he came apart to be alone with the disciples but it didn't happen. Instead he had to minister or he got to minister. So number three, what do I do when I have a broken heart? Place your schedule in God's hands. You can't schedule your own therapy. Watch this. God does miracles but you can't schedule the miracle. You've got to just do what you're supposed to do. What do I do? My heart is broken. You got a midterm test? Yes, what should I do? Study for it, weirdo. Just study for it. Yeah, but I'm hurting. <laughs> Shut up and just study. What do I do? My heart's broken. Well, 930, you know, Bible conference. What do I do? What do I do? Go listen to Johnny Poe preach. Enjoy the songs. Listen to the bells, you ding-dong.
Hebrews 12, and we're finished. Hebrews 12. Remember, we close this with our text. They that sow in tears, what's the, what's the rest of it say? Shall reap in joy. If you cry, you'll weep, reap in joy. Did I say weep in joy? But anyway, don't waste your sorrows. Psalm 56, 8 says that God is placed in a book every tear that you've cried. Matter of fact, the psalmist said, can you put them in the bottle because you've already placed them in the book? You know what God says? I've already treasured your tears. I've bottled up every tear that you... Do you realize that your tears are precious to God? What's precious to us on earth is not precious to God. We, we value gold here on earth. God uses it for asphalt in heaven. We demean the tears of our broken hearts. But God says, I use them as my treasure trove in heaven. That's my, he, he collects two things in heaven, our prayers and our tears. You ever thought about this? So what's precious to God in heaven that we do on earth? Labor not for the meat that perisheth, right? He says, I treasure up your prayers. I put them in receptacles. The saints are going around in heaven carrying our prayers. Yeah, ooh, glory to God. This is like gold, isn't it? Right? It's the, these are diamonds. He treasures our prayers. He treasures our tears. Don't put down your tears. He says in Psalm 56, 8, you put them in a bottle. You put them in a book. Hebrews 12, this is so good. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubt, shall doubtless, everybody say doubtless, come again with rejoicing. Wherefore, chapter 12, Hebrews 1, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Watch this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Watch this who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The greatest shame was when he took our sins on his own body. He hated the shame of having to be separated from the Father and the blessed Holy Spirit. But he took it all because he was looking forward to the joy of him being back in the Holy Trinity setting, back in heaven, but not alone with you and me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. This too shall pass. God is using your heart to make you a better person. When my wife broke up with me, I have to tell you, she was so loved by me that she was intruding upon my love to Jesus. And a three-month period in my college life, God took her out of my life to get my priorities right. When I came back to Barbara, I treated her like she should have been treated, with favor, with love, with compassion, but as my future, and thank God, became my wife. Not as my God, not as my idol. I want to ask you a question. What would be taken out of your life today that if it came out of your life, you'd want to kill yourself? Is there something that would be taken out of your life today that you'd want to die if you didn't have it? Then I suggest to you that could be an idol. And you have set that thing up like a Dagon and God's going to knock your Dagon on the face if you don't get your priorities right. My heartbreak, personally speaking, for me was so good. And as I was going through the heartbreak and my love to Jesus increased and maximized, I actually came to the point that I thought I was going to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God's sake. I can live without women. As long as I got you, Jesus, I'm going to go on for God. Maybe that's what you want. You want me to be in a third world country in a dangerous place. I'll be like Brother Andrew. I'll just be an Amy Carmichael for Jesus. 
And then on the way to Plymouth, Indiana, the Highlander trio was sitting in the back seat, and I'm driving the car, and I see these brown eyes. They look like pieces of caramel floating in saucers of milk. My heart began to thump like crazy. It's now been three months. I said, Lord, I got over her. What's going on now? And it's like the Lord said to me, well, you got over her, and you put me first. Now I'm going to give you her back as long as you love me the way you should. And my love to Jesus has never deterred from that point. It's only gotten better and better and better. I am so thankful that Barbara broke my heart. I needed it. And during that heartbreak, for the joy that I saw beyond my heartbreak, for the time that I could see that God was doing something great in my life, I took all the pain. I didn't try to throw my pain on somebody else. So my friend said, you know, you never lost your hallelujah during your heartbreak. And amen, don't ever lose your hallelujah. Man, my, my love to Jesus was maximized where it ought to be. And I'm telling you, I got it right with the Lord. And I saw joy beyond the hurt. I saw that I was not only going to get over it, I was getting over it. And she didn't get me over it. Did you hear me? She she did not get me over it. Jesus got me over it. And I worshiped Jesus. And then I got Barbara. God is good and greatly to be praised. Don't waste your broken heart. And don't you think for one moment that God is out of control and doesn't know what's happening. If he didn't order it, he's allowed it. Now you just suck it up. Love Jesus. And deal with it. Thank you for joining us for today's Pulpit Hour, brought to you by The Preaching Channel. To listen to this message once again in its entirety, for a free download of this message or a variety of any other messages, or to listen to preaching 24 hours a day, you can visit The Preaching Channel at wgcrpreaching.net. If you don't have download capabilities, feel free to call and order a CD copy of today's message at 828-884-9427.